keep offering it. Verse. Draw your attention to the screen real quick. And let's say this scripture out loud. Come on, join with me as we, we declare the scripture together. Say, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is God's promise to you and to me. He has started a work in your life and it is good. We don't always see it, we don't always always aware of it, but it is good. And some of you have believed the lie that God is actually not working in your life. He's kind of set things in motion and he's left you alone. And you believe that lie that you're kind of out there all by yourself. But God's promise to you is not only has he started it, but he'll continue to work it. He'll continue to work in it, your life. And so last week we started doing this series where we're going through the book of Nehemiah where we're looking at how God actually works in our lives to rebuild and to restore and to renew our lives. And if you haven't read the book of Nehemiah, I want to encourage you to read the book of Nehemiah as we're going through this series. And if you've already read it, let me encourage you to read it again. It happens to be one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. This Old Testament, there's so much jam-packed in this, in this book in the Old Testament. But the, the actual story of Nehemiah is that it's a historical account of how God used one man by the name of Nehemiah to help bring hope and restoration to a disillusioned people by helping them rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been destroyed decades earlier. And really it's in this wall building process that we see a very close picture of the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives to renew and to rebuild and to restore our lives. So in Nehemiah chapter one, is where we're gonna start here this morning. Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, it says, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Kahanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me for, with some of the men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from captivity and about how things were going on in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, here, right here at the beginning of this chapter, um, it begins in Susa, which was the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. And we're brought into this conversation with Nehemiah and a relative of his that's just arrived from Jerusalem. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to underline verse 2, which says, "...about the Jews who had returned from captivity." Now, let me give you the backstory for what's going on, because we're just kind of launched in this conversation with maybe not really an orientation of what's happening before we get to this conversation. And so let me kind of give you the backstory of this, because this is a, a really tumultuous time in the history of Israel. In 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the dreaded monarch of Babylon, had conquered Israel and had destroyed Jerusalem. And as a result, he, he had taken all the Jews captive and, and then pushed them then into foreign territories. And he did this in order to dissolve the identity of the Jewish people and to smash their wills as individuals. This is going to be important as we talk through the book of Nehemiah to understand what the devil wants to do in your life of how he wants to destroy your life. Nebuchadnezzar was doing that with the people of, of Israel. But right before Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, 
God began to speak to his prophets of what was about to come, to forewarn them, to help them navigate to what would be a very difficult season in their lives. And, and, and so one of the prophets that he spoke to was by the name of Jeremiah. And he spoke to Jeremiah that this, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, that he would come and he would invade and he would destroy Israel. And as a result, the Jewish people would be scattered to foreign lands. But after 70 years, they would be allowed to come back to Jerusalem. One of the passages that describes this in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, it says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. And so God wanted the people to know this was about ready to happen. And so he spoke to Jeremiah about these things, and he had Jeremiah communicate it then to his people. Another prophet that he spoke to was the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah began to describe how God would return the Jews back to Jerusalem. Isaiah 44 is an example of this in verse 24. It says, this is what the Lord says, your redeemer and creator. I am the Lord who made all things. I alone stretched out the heavens, who was with me when I made the earth. I expose the false prophets as liars and makes fools of fortune tellers. I cause the wise to give bad advice, thus proving them to be fools. But I carry out the predictions of my prophets. By them I say to Jerusalem, people will live here again, and to the towns of Judah, you will be rebuilt, I will restore your ruins. When I speak to the rivers and say, dry up, they will dry up. When I say to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. Now, as you think about what's going on here, because Isaiah was prophesying that this return of the, of the Jews after 70 years would happen as a result of an edict that would be issued by a ruler by the name of Cyrus. Now, when you're just reading this, you may not understand the context of what's going on, but this is 100 years before Cyrus is even born. 100 years before Cyrus is even born, and God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah that a ruler will rise up, and his name is Cyrus. And he will issue an edict that will allow the Jews to return back to Jerusalem. How many of you know that nothing takes God by surprise? Nothing takes God by surprise. God knows everything that's going on, and he's not rattled by the different things that happen in our lives or in the world today, which means he's not surprised by the things that are going on in your life. He's not shocked that this situation that you're in is happening, which means this, folks. If God's not surprised, it means that he has a way through it for you. Just like he did with the Israelites, he has a way through those difficult situations that we come in context with because it doesn't surprise God. God makes a way through those difficult situations. Another prophet that he spoke through was by the name of Ezekiel. And he told Ezekiel that the Jews would be able to return back to Jerusalem. They'd be able to rebuild the temple and be able to worship God in purity. One of the things that the Israelites struggled so much, if you ever read your Bible, is that they would vacillate from, from serving God and worshiping God to running after this idol, running after this idol. And God said, in this situation, when I finally return the Israelites back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, that he'll change their hearts. And no longer will that plurality of religion be a struggle for them. Look at this in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16. It says, therefore tell the exiles, this is what the sovereign Lord says, although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. Take a moment right here, because you need to hear that for your own life. Even in the most difficult situations, the most difficult times in your life, you need to understand that God is with you. 
in this most tumultuous season in the Israelites' life, God was right there with them. He didn't forsake them and said, I'll see you in 70 years. That's not what he said. He said, I will actually be with you in that very difficult situation. Verse 17, I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. When the people return to the home and they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols. And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Through an amazing situation of international events, the great prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophecies of Zephaniah and Haggai, all foretelling the coming back of the Jewish people to Jerusalem, every one of them came to pass. And in 536 BC, which was exactly 70 years after the first Jews were sent into exile exactly 70 years after Cyrus issued the edict for the Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem. Ezra documents this in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing to send it through the kingdom. This is what the king of Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. And so as a result of this edict that Cyrus issued, which God had proclaimed would happen before this man was even born, as a result of this, 50,000 Jewish people returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild, to start rebuilding the temple of God. Now, I want you to think about what's going on here, because in this swirl of prophetic and historic events, God was at work renewing and rebuilding and restoring his people, and nations and kings were unwittingly bowing to God's plan and purposes. Think about that. What an extraordinary thing. When you begin to understand that the God that we worship holds kings and nations in his hands and that he will fulfill his purpose. He will fulfill his plan. If you begin to see that in history, then it will give you faith and trust to know that you are in his hands and that he is actually working in your life as well. God was working there in that situation. The same is true for you and me. God is at work in your life. Come on, turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor, God is at work in your life. Turn to your other neighbor and tell, and tell your other neighbor, God won't give up on you. <laughs> now look at this in Nehemiah chapter 1 again. It says, In the late autumn in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Kahanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some of the other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from captivity and about how things were going on in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah's words when he says about the Jews who had returned there from captivity, he was referencing all these Jews that had been allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. He was questioning, how's it going? All these exiles have been able to return to Jerusalem. How's it going for them? Now, this is now 446 B.C. So we've just jumped 90 years into the future, 90 years since the Jewish people had first been allowed to go back to Jerusalem, 70 years since they had rebuilt the temple. 
In other words, it took him 20 years to rebuild the temple. But now it's 70 years past that. It's 446 BC. And now Nehemiah hears the word of what's happening in Jerusalem. After all this time, this is what's going on in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's concern is that after all of this time, after 90 years, the city is still destroyed. Sure, they've been able to go back to Jerusalem. Sure, they've been able to rebuild the temple. And sure, they've been able to restore worship. But the evidence of reestablished rulership, the evidence that a, that a respectable capital city has risen from the ashes of destruction, none of that exists. And so as a result, people and nations all around were mocking the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. They're saying, who, who is this God of yours that you pretend to serve? He's not able to do anything. Sure, he brings you back to Jerusalem and he makes you build a temple. And you're, you're supposed to worship God, but look at your city. It's in shambles. It's in ruins. Your God's not able to help you in what really matters. Can you hear the mocking voices of what was going on? That's what they were enduring there in that situation. And so this is what was causing Nehemiah's grief and his concern. Look again, verse 3. It says, they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. See, a city with a temple but no walls is a blight upon the name of its people and a reproach to the name of God. I think maybe it's a little hard for us to understand the context of this because we don't live in cities where there's walls and gates, right? But maybe you can hear it this way. You call yourself a Christian. You say you worship God, but look at your life. There's no difference in your life. Look at your marriage. It's a mess. Look at your finances. It's a mess. These addictions that you have, they're no different than anybody else. You say God is able, but yet you have the sickness and these diseases in your body. Who is this God that you say you serve? You say you're a Christian. What difference does that make? Can you hear the mocking words of those around? See, it's important to understand that God's not only interested in for you forming a relationship in, with him, but he wants to renew and to rebuild and to restore your life. And it's through the book of Nehemiah that we begin to see how that's done. And so I want you to see how Nehemiah responds to this. Look at that in verse 4. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. The first thing that Nehemiah did was that Nehemiah was motivated by love for the people with the problem. Nehemiah was motivated by love. I think this is so interesting because Nehemiah, Nehemiah could have responded a lot of different ways. He hears this report, what's going on, what's going back on in Jerusalem. Could he, re, he could have responded with criticism or cynicism, could have responded in anger or fear. And he could have responded with callous indifference. I mean, because after all, well, who was he? Why, why does it make any difference to him? But, but that's, not what Nehemiah, that's not how Nehemiah responded. Nehemiah responded out of love in his heart toward the people and what was happened back in Jerusalem. And he wept for days. This is really significant because I, I think for us, when you look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah had never lived in Jerusalem. He was too young, right? It had been generations for people. And so he had all, all he knew was Babylon. All he knew was his life in Babylon. 
And so it would have been easy for him to say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't affect me. This is, this is a long ways away. I don't live in Jerusalem. I don't live in Israel. I just live in Babylon. As long as my life here is, is significant, then I'm, I'm okay. And so it would have been easy just to say, this, is not, this hasn't anything to do with me. But instead, that's not how he responded. He allowed his heart to expand for love for those that were even beyond his reach. In other words, he began to allow God to give him a different perspective and allowed love to grow inside of his heart. And I think this is one reason why so many of us miss out on what God is doing today because we don't allow ourselves and our hearts to expand with love for the things that breaks God's heart and the things that are on God's heart. We get so consumed with our lives and what's going on in our lives that we're not able to see actually the big picture. We tend to live our lives from a very myopic point of view where all we can see is what's going on right in front of us, my problems and my issues. And when that happens, it will crowd out God and it will crowd out God's love and what he wants to do in your life. How Nehemiah responded, instead of just thinking about it himself, he allowed God to begin to expand his perspective of what God was doing around him. And as a result, love grew in his heart. And he, so he began to be motivated out of love. Here's the second thing then. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Lord, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. The second thing that Nehemiah did was that Nehemiah knew who to go to first with the problem. He knew who to go to first with the problem. Who did he go to first? Who did he go to first? He went to God. What do we do? When a problem arises, we're like chickens with our heads cut off. Anybody grew up on the farm where you cut off chickens' heads? It's not a pretty sight, but boy, do they move around, don't they? <laughs> it's kind of what happens in our lives. Something happens, and we become like these chickens with our head cut off, and we go to this person and that person, gossiping and gossiping. We go to our pastor. We go to our, our spouse, trying to get them to solve the problem. If we can't go to anybody else, then i gotta, I got to pull up myself by the bootstraps, and i got to make it happen in and of myself. But that's not what Nehemiah did. The first person he went to was God, and he prayed. And here's the thing we need to understand about prayer that I think is so significant. Because prayer is more about collaboration than information. Prayer is so much more about collaboration than information. Too many of us feel like we're, we're trying to convince God with the information that we've given. God, I don't think you'd realize this is going on. <laughs> I mean, God, if you really knew this was what was happening, then you would do something about it. And we tend to use prayer as information. How many of you have ever been to a prayer meeting where you felt like you were at a gossip session? I have. God, you need to work in Maggie's life. Because she's really struggling with looking at pornography on the internet. You know her husband, Brad, you know, he hit her this last week. And, you know, she's really struggling with unforgiveness. And she's struggling with the church and the people in the church because they don't know how to help her. And she's getting upset. Ever been to a gossip meeting that's a prayer meeting? It's the reason because we get this prayer thing mixed up. We think it's about information that we're trying to feed God instead of collaboration. Prayer is not about information. Prayer is about consulting God with the solution. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Look at verse 6. Here's the third thing. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even... 
Even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to my prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. The third thing that Nehemiah did was that Nehemiah owned his part of the problem. He owned his part of the problem. Again, notice what he did. Verse 6, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying your commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Nehemiah took responsibility for the failure. Listen, we need to be able to own our failures and then surrender them to God. And so many of us, we get this completely out of whack. Some of us refuse to own our failures, and as a result, no real change happens in our life. We make excuses, and we say, well, it's because of this situation or this person. I remember years ago, I was counseling with a, a guy who had been cheating on his wife and just talking him through what, he, what was going on. And every time I tried to hold him accountable to what was going on, he kept on saying, well, it's her fault. If she wouldn't have done this, if she wouldn't have done that, if she would have done this, then I wouldn't have done that. And finally, I stopped and said, Tom, you need to understand, you committed adultery. You are an adulterer. And I said, Tom, repeat this after me. Say, I am an adulterer. And here's the thing. He couldn't. He couldn't because he was unwilling to take responsibility for his failure. He kept on wanting to push it off on somebody else. But here's the thing. So we will not move forward if we don't take responsibility for our failure. And some of us don't move because we're not taking responsibility for our failure. But other times we take responsibility for our failure, but we refuse to surrender it to God. And as a result, we feel condemned, we feel guilty, and we get stuck. And we walk around so heavy and burdened because we haven't actually surrendered that to God. Nehemiah did both. Nehemiah accepted responsibility for the failure, and then he surrendered it to God. And as a result, God began to give him a greater perspective than was going on. He identified with the people without shirking his responsibility. And when you look at Nehemiah, it would have been easy for him to shirk responsibility. Because after all, he wasn't in Jerusalem. He hadn't done anything. After all, he was younger than all the people that, you know, he wasn't born when God's judgment came on the nation of Israel. He, he would have been easy for him to say, I'm just a cupbearer. Who am I in all, in all of this? And being a cupbearer, you, you remember that from history, what a cupbearer was? A cupbearer was one who was responsible for bringing the king and queen their drink. And he was the one that was responsible to make sure that it wasn't poisoned because there was always, always his plans to be able to poison the king and queen. And so he was responsible for making sure they got the right, right drinks to bring to the king and queen. And then in question, he was responsible. He had to take a drink first and everybody would watch him. If he didn't die, then it was okay to drink. In other words, a cupbearer was expendable. And so it would have been easy for him just to see himself as expendable. Who am I? What difference can a lowly cupbearer make? What, what responsibility do I? He could, it would have been really easy for him just to think that it wasn't his fight, but that's not what he did. He accepted his part to the problem. I think this is really important for us to understand. Because if we're going to allow God to renew and to rebuild our lives... It's important that we have to recognize we're pretty bad at doing it ourselves. We're bad architects. We're bad construction workers. We're bad builders of our own lives. And if you don't realize that, look at yourself in a mirror later on today. 
Look what's happened in your life. But until we can do that, we can't allow God to do it himself. We got to be able to relinquish that. We got to accept our failure in order to be able to move forward. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. And here's the last thing. Look what happens in chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. The king asked me, why are you looking sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I be sad? How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild at the sea where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple forest for the city walls and for the house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. See, not only did Nehemiah, was he motivated by love, and not only was Nehemiah, did Nehemiah begin with prayer, not only did Nehemiah take responsibility, the fourth thing that Nehemiah did was that he was prepared to fix the problem. He was prepared to fix the problem. Now think about what's going on here because when Nehemiah first heard this word, this report from Jerusalem, it was around December. It wasn't until the spring that he had this opportunity with the king. About four months go by from the time he hears the problem till he has an opportunity before the king. And so what was he doing during those four months? You can tell by his response to the question that Nehemiah had been researching and thinking about what all he would need in terms of resources, people, and permission. And so when the king says, what do you request? Nehemiah was prepared to give him a lengthy, detailed answer. I want you to think about that here this morning because are you ready? Are you ready for the question? Because here's the thing, if God is with you, if God is for you, if God is working behind the scenes, then there will be an opportunity that will come up where the question will be presented to you, what do you request? Will you be ready to answer that question? You say you want God to do something in your finances, but what are you doing about it? Are you getting out of debt? Are you living within your means? Are you seeking counsel? Are you seeking advice? You say you want God to work in your marriage. What are you doing about it? Are you getting counsel on what's going on? Are you forgiving your spouse? What are you doing? You say, God, you want God to work in those dreams that he's placed in your heart. Then what are you doing about it? Are you getting trained? Are you doing your research? Are you taking steps of faith? What are you doing about those things that God's put in your heart? For four months, Nehemiah was doing his research and planning. And so when the king says, what do you request? He was ready. And look what happened. Verse 8. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. It's important that you recognize that just as God was working in Nehemiah's time, he's working in our time as well. 
He's working to renew and restore and to rebuild your life. And he's working to renew and rebuild and restore this region that we live in. You may not always be able to see it. It may not always be clear what he's doing, but he is moving. And so the question becomes, are you willing to collaborate with him? Are you willing to surrender to his renewing and his rebuilding and his restoring process, even though you don't completely understand it? Because that's what faith is. Faith is being able to take take a step when you don't fully see where you're going. Faith is being able to believe that God's plans are bigger than what you think and his plans are good. The plans that he has for you are good. That's what faith is. When you think about Nehemiah, Nehemiah wasn't thinking that he needed to be the answer to all these prophecies that he'd heard all of his life from Scripture. That's not what he was thinking. That's not what motivated him. What Nehemiah, what motivated Nehemiah was that something happened in his heart and he responded to a movement in his heart. So what's in your heart? If God is moving, then he's putting some things in your heart. So what's then in your heart? I believe God is looking for men and women who will intersect their lives with God's plans and purposes. He's looking for men and women who will raise their hands and say, God, I'm willing. God, I'm available. I'll I'll take a step forward. Last week, like Rob said, there were 349 people who came to our One Chapel Kyle launch service. 349 people. Come on, put your hands together, folks. 20, so 22 people made commitments to Jesus Christ last week. Come on. Let's thank God for that. I want you to think about that because that did not exist until last Sunday. But here's the thing. God was already stirring in the Kyle Buda area way before it was ever on our horizon. But you know what it took? It took one man, our pastor, who would say, God, I'm willing. God, I'm available. And then to start taking steps, faith steps forward into the unknown. Nobody knew if anyone would show up last week. All we did was take steps forward. And that's what happens, folks. So often what we're doing is that we're believing, we wouldn't believe God for something, but we're just sitting there waiting for it to drop in our hands. Stop sitting. Get up and take a step of faith. Do your research. Go get trained. Start working a plan here so that you're ready when the question comes, what do you request? Because it will come. And here's what I think. If it's not you, then who? If it's not now, Oprah says this. (laughs) If it's not now, then when? God is looking for men and women who will just simply say, God, I don't know it all, but you're doing something in the heart, so I'm, I'm willing. God, I'm available. As we end here this morning, we're going to take communion together. And as you take communion here today, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to use it as your step of faith, where you're going to engage your faith with God. We're going to say, God, I want to be a part of your plan. You're doing something. I don't always see what it is, but I want to be a part of it. Where you say, God, I'm willing, I'm available. If you would, I'm going to just ask you to close your eyes here. In Psalms chapter 46, verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The New American Standard says, Cease striving and know that I am God. And the G. translation says, Let go of your concerns. 
then you will know that I am God. I rule the nations. I rule the earth. You know, I think so often because we become so myopic in our own lives and all we can see is what's just right in front of us and what we're absorbed with in our own, own daily lives that I think so often we lose the perspective how big God is. And my prayer as we began to talk about Nehemiah here tonight and this, this, this morning as we talked about how God moved in nations and in kings and they were unwittingly bowing to his purpose and his plans that you can know that God is working in your life in the midst of things that you understand, in the midst of things you don't understand, in the midst of joys and successes, in the midst of sorrows and confusion and destruction all around you. God is working in the midst of that. And so our encouragement here is cease, cease striving. Let go of your concerns. Know that God is God, that he rules the nation, he rules the earth, which means he's ruling in your life. And so, Father, all around this room, Father, all the things that are going on in our life, instead of shirking responsibility, God, we recognize how poor we do, what a poor job we do in kind of constructing our lives and building our own lives. We're bad architects, God. We're bad construction workers. We're bad builders. God, we failed in so many different ways. And so, God, we own up to that and we surrender that to you. God, we let it go. We release it from our hands into yours. God, that you would take it and you would take what's destroyed and you would take what's crumbled and you would begin to build it, renew it and restore it. That out of ashes would come joy and out of destruction would come beauty. God, even as we sang, as you ministered to us earlier, that you would make that way where there seems to be no way. God, I thank you that you are in the midst of what we're doing and that, God, that we can put our faith and our trust and our hope in you. The Bible describes for us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. I love that because he's talking about there's newness, that we don't have to carry the weight of our sins and our failures and our mistakes, that he washes them as far as the east is from the west and he remembers them no longer. And so he says, take this, do this in remembrance of me. Here at One Chapel, we celebrate open communion, which means this. You don't have to be a member here to take communion together. We invite you 